Welcome to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. My name is Dave Mons. I'm a student of psychology and philosophy and a professional pilot. My aim is to share big ideas from science and the humanities to get you thinking and to help you make sense of the world. There is no more ubiquitous quality that makes humans unique in the animal kingdom than language. That sentence was 16 words long, around nine of which represent ideas or concepts, things that we can describe. The remaining words merely tie it all together. Humans are unique because we have language. That sentence says more or less the same thing in just seven words. So, is it more correct? The answer is, it depends. It depends on the audience, the complexity of the ideas being conveyed, the assumption of knowledge, of social convention, in short, on culture. But here's the thing. Regardless of which way I say it, you know exactly what I mean. Each word, each syllable even, is distinct and understood, transmitting clearly the message I am communicating. Contained within either of those sentences is a vast array of complex ideas, drawing on a variety of cognitive resources, from memory and comprehension, to reasoning and association, in addition to the cultural predicates I just mentioned. And even more than that, the precise way in which the sentences are constructed fit a certain pattern, a grammar, which is distinct. Consider this version of the sentence. Language are we because unique humans have. The same words assembled in this way no longer make sense. It's the very same concepts, they mean exactly the same things, but because their order is jumbled, that is all they are now, an incoherent collection of words. To say it the right way then, to construct the sentence, to speak it, for you to hear it, to deconstruct and comprehend it, all happens in the blink of an eye. This is a marvel so intrinsic to everyday life, to being human, that we take it for granted. How did we learn to perform this remarkable trick? For native speakers of English, we learn the intricacies of our language primarily through observation, imitation, and osmosis. By the age of five, a little human knows well over 2,000 words, but to be fair, that child already knew a thousand by the time they were three. But is that really so impressive when we consider that when just 18 months old, an infant understands the basic tenets of grammar? They know about subject, object, verb before they can even comprehend the concepts. And baby humans are actually making some headway long before that. While still nestled in their mother's womb, unborn children begin to learn the rhythm of their native tongue by listening to their mother's speaking. You could almost say, Humans are born with language. We don't learn to do it. From our first babbling goo-goo-gargars, our brains were wired to produce speech. This seemingly innate propensity to develop language, and how we use it to establish our complex social worlds, makes us unique from virtually every other species on the planet. But is it really innate? Is it only us who possess this gift? Or do animals also communicate using language? If not, then what is it that allows us to converse, to share stories and construct our societies together? Where did this amazing ability come from? Did language emerge gradually over millions of years, or did it appear suddenly? Are all languages fundamentally the same? Do we need language to think? 
do different languages make people think and behave differently to one another? This and the episodes to follow will explore these questions and many more as we explore the vast domain of language. When I began thinking about a podcast on language, I was thinking of it from a purely philosophical perspective. I was intrigued by the way in which language informs culture. But as I began to research the topic, I found myself asking these very questions, and on my search for answers, it became clear that I had opened Pandora's box. The study of language has been tackled by virtually every discipline of science and the humanities, and by some of the biggest names in academia. It includes a panoply of interdisciplinary topics, which concern scientists and researchers from fields as disparate as evolutionary psychology, anthropology and linguistics, to neuroscience, philosophy and artificial intelligence. As always, my task here is to try to tell you a story. And this one charts a path through our modern understanding of language, lingering here and there on a few points of interest and maybe even adding a few thoughts of my own. But make no mistake, this topic is huge, and many, if not all, of my questions will remain unanswered. Not for lack of trying, mind you, but for lack of consensus amid conflicting and oftentimes ambiguous evidence. In this way, the study of language offers a useful case study for understanding the power of scientific inquiry and reason and its limits. Our forebears may have left us traces of their existence in the fossil record, but we find no recordings of their discourse. There was no The Way It Was podcast from one million years before the present. Their utterances may have consisted of little more than grunts and squeals, or perhaps they communicated complex ideas through gestures. We will never know for sure but many have made compelling inferences which we'll explore throughout this series. I hope our journey into the study of language will surprise and intrigue you as it has me, but I beg your patience as I bump on my way through. If you do spot any glaring omissions or blatant errors or incorrect interpretations, by all means let me know and know that the errors are all mine. Additionally, I recommend that you check out the reading list that you'll find in the show notes of each episode to explore these topics in more detail and fill in the many blanks that I've had to leave due to the constraints of time and space. So let's begin with the question that really has to come first. What is language? The Collins Online Dictionary defines the meaning of the word language as a system of communication which consists of a set of sounds and written symbols which are used by the people of a particular country or region for talking or writing. This is a popular definition. It represents how we use language in everyday life but it does little to define what language really is, or rather, what it can be. Linguist and anthropologist Daniel Everett, who supplies a lot of the source code for this series, offers us a more expansive definition, which breaks language down into its component parts. He says, Language is the interaction of meaning. This is semantics. Conditions on usage, which is pragmatics. The physical properties of its inventory of sounds. This is phonetics. A grammar, which is syntax or sentence structure. Phonology, which is sound structure. Morphology, which is word structure. And discourse conversational organisational principles, information and gestures. Everett concludes this definition by saying, Language is a gestalt. The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. What these definitions identify is an important distinction. Language is not the same thing as communication. A language may be expressed through a system of communication, but the concept of language is far richer 
and goes far deeper than just a set of sounds and written symbols. Language's gestalt, or synergy, really lies at the heart of the topic, and in the course of this series, we are going to see just how deep that thread runs. But to get us started, we can keep things simple and define language as primarily a means of communication. The transference of information from one entity to another through an intended, deliberate act. That final part is important. The intentionality of the act of communication which we perform when we talk, sign and write is unmistakable. The same cannot be said of all other animals. Creatures large and small can summon a cacophony at times, from chirps and barks and trumpeting calls, to cheerful whistles, melodic songs and eerie howls. But can we be certain that they are all intentionally directed at another animal, and that the animals that hear the call understand them for what they are? Is the squawk of a monkey merely a siren, or is there a form of language embedded within its piercing shriek? We can't assume so with anywhere near the same surety that we can say of human language. But before you start cooing about your grandmother's talking parrot or the chimpanzee experiments you saw on the Discovery Channel, rest assured that we'll cover animals in detail in a couple of episodes. But first, we have to lay the foundations. Language is a system, really many systems. And as Everett said, it's a gestalt, a synergy of many moving parts. And by that I mean... It is a set of rules and procedures formally adopted by at least two people who use them to create, transmit and interpret a message. I'm talking about grammar. Commonly accepted terms and definitions, sounds and signs, which while almost totally arbitrary, are collectively agreed upon and employed in the service of communication. The sheer volume of words and their meanings and how they can be joined together to transmit every conceivable sentence is literally infinite. From a relatively simple set of rules, a finite number of inputs, that is, can be constructed an infinite number of possible combinations and outputs. Remarkably, despite this endless recursivity, we can immediately identify those which don't belong. Spling, avarate, and glape look and sound like plausible English words. They obey some rules of grammar, the vowels and consonants are in the right places, but they are gobbledygook or as they excitedly chant in my six-year-old daughter's reading and writing class, they are a load of nonsense. The vast collection of words we know, around 60,000 for the average human, and those we don't, but which we could if we got around to learning them, is known as the lexicon, and we turn them into sentences that obey grammatical rules called syntactic rules, or sometimes just syntax. While it might be difficult to identify the fine nuance of grammar, We all get the general rules, as we saw in the example I gave in the introduction. Another important point about language is that its representative symbols and grammar are completely arbitrary, whether oral or visual. When we look at the word water, as it is written, does it give any indication of what it represents? No, not really. How about its sound? Water. Two syllables, kind of harsh sounding, certainly nothing about the word bears any resemblance to a physical quality or property of water. So, in order to understand that the word water means a fluid made up of two hydrogen molecules for every oxygen molecule, something that we need to drink to survive that falls from the clouds and flows through the rivers and fills the oceans, we just need to know it. We must learn this definition somehow. There is nothing inherent to the word that reveals its meaning. Virtually all words are like this, save for a handful of onomatopoeic examples like bang, slam or coup, 
but the sounds we ascribe to the letters, they're still arbitrary. What picture represents a sound after all? In the order of the words, can I have a glass of water, is correct in English, but in another language it could just as easily read, a glass of water, I can have. In many languages, this sentence says the same thing. The unfortunate implication of this arbitrariness is that there are many languages, some six or seven thousand, with as many disparate ways of representing meaning in visual and oral forms as can be imagined. English, for example, has 20 different vowel sounds, while Spanish has only five. Yet despite the endless ways of constructing language, there are many similarities. Prominent linguist Noam Chomsky argues the grammatical basis of human languages is universal. There's a lot to be said about that. In fact, many modern languages are derived from a family of languages. These can be thought of as a family tree of languages in which the branches descend from a common ancient language, and this is known as Proto-Indo-European, or PIE. Research over many decades carefully compared the sounds of various languages through a field known as comparative grammar. From PIE come many families of languages. For instance, the Balto-Slavic, Celtic, Germanic, Greek, Indo-Iranian and Romance language families. English is part of the Germanic family alongside Dutch and German, while the Romance languages consist of French, Italian, Portuguese, Romanian and Spanish. Then there are the written forms of language and their alphabets, which can be traced back over 5,000 years to the hieroglyphics of ancient Egypt, to the oracle bone script, which is the earliest form of Chinese writing, or the still largely undeciphered Indus script of ancient Mesopotamia, which it is thought may have contributed to the development of the Brahmi family of characters found throughout Asia. Such diversity is almost beyond belief. One explanation for this diversity is found in the Bible, in the story of the Tower of Babel from the book of Genesis. Early in the Old Testament, in the generations that followed the Great Flood, God had grown weary of the arrogance of humans as they built a tower to heaven. Chapter 11, verses 1-9 through 9 of Genesis reads, And the whole earth was of one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. And they said to one another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them, thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime had they for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build a city and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven. And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men had built. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one and they have all one language, and this they begin to do, and now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. Go to, let us go down, and there confound their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad, from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. The Old Testament God wasn't the friendliest of gods. So now that we are beginning to understand what language is, we may turn to the question which has often been cited as one of the hardest facing science. Where did language come from? This question has been the source of rigorous academic debate and speculation for centuries, and continues to divide even today. Charles Darwin, who famously proposed the theory of evolution by natural selection, 
offered this explanation. Quote, I cannot doubt that language owes its origin to the imitation and modification, aided by signs and gestures of various natural sounds, the voices of other animals, and man's own instinctive cries. Indeed, this logical speculation gave rise to a number of theories. A scroll through the Origins of Language Wikipedia entry reveals no less than 20 different theories and models which attempt to explain some part of the origins of language. In 1866, the Linguistic Society of Paris famously imposed a ban on all discussions related to questions concerning the origins of language, as the many theories proposed amounted to little more than speculation with no empirical methodology. A similar move was followed by the Philological Society of London in 1911. When considering the types of theories proposed at the time, one can begin to see why the topic caused such a furore. Max Müller, a German scholar, was particularly interested in cultures and their historical use of language, a field known as philology. In 1861, he compiled a list of theories on the origins of language which include the following. The Bowwell theory, that early words were imitations of the cries of beasts and birds. <laughs> when I think of this, I just imagine somebody going, Oh, God, oh, oh, I could kill a bison right now. The poo-poo theory, which suggests that the first utterances were exclamations in response to pain, shock or surprise, basically swearing. So imagine this one. Ah, bugger! Then there's the ding-dong theory, which states that the earliest words are simply an extension of the natural vibrations found in all natural objects. Then there's the yo-he-ho theory, which argues that language emerged from the collective rhythmic movements of those engaged in synchronised physical labour. No, not that kind of synchronised physical labour, more like the heave-ho of rowing. In what context this could occur in prehistoric man, the theory doesn't elaborate, but it is also thought this theory was put forward as a tongue-in-cheek jab at the field and all of its ridiculous theories. A later theory called the Tatar theory comes from the idea that the tongue mimics gestures made by the hands. For instance, when one says Tatar, they are mimicking their hand-waving gesture with their tongue. It's any wonder the linguistic societies of Paris and London banned all talk of talk. If only thoughts on the origins of language were confined to mere speculation such as this. But unfortunately, and perhaps indicative of the inquisitive nature of humans, there are accounts of cruel experiments whose aim was to discover the true origins of language. The first of these is told by Herodotus, a Greek historian who lived in the 7th century. He tells the story of the Egyptian pharaoh Samtik I, who sent two newborn babies to live with a shepherd in an isolated part of the kingdom. The shepherd was under strict instructions, care for the children, but never speak to them. Samtik's hypothesis was that when left to their own devices, the language the children would eventually begin to speak would be the true mother tongue of humanity. As the story, according to Herodotus, goes, one day one of the children uttered the word, Bikos, an ancient Phrygian word meaning bread. Phrygia was located in what is now modern-day Turkey. This led Samtik to the conclusion that Phrygia was the original civilization. Nearly a thousand years later, an original Renaissance man, King James IV of Scotland, was fascinated by language. He was reputedly the last Scottish king to speak Scottish Gaelic, but was also fluent in Latin, French, German, Italian, Flemish and Spanish, in addition to English. In another attempt to determine the original language of man, and indeed of God, 
King James sent another two unfortunate babies to live on the desolate island of Inkeith in the Firth of Forth to be raised in isolation by a deaf-mute woman. While it was rumoured the children began to speak Hebrew, 18th century novelist Sir Walter Scott thought it more likely the children would, quote, scream like their dumb nurse or bleat like the goats and sheep on the island. Given that King James IV would preside over his alchemists' attempts to fly to France using a set of wings made from chicken feathers, one could be forgiven for thinking language alone does not maketh the man. Despite a long history of speculation and more credible scientific inquiries, we can never really know the true origins of the remarkable ability possessed by humans to communicate through language. But we have a lot of ideas better than these, and we'll unpack a few. On the face of it, there are really two key contemporary theories for the origins of language. The first is a theory of continuity, or uniformitarianism. This argues that language evolved gradually over many thousands or even millions of years via many steps, and was present in many forms from gestures and imitation to the eventual creation of icons and abstract symbols. The other is a theory of discontinuity, or catastrophism. This approach argues that language appeared relatively spontaneously in a so-called Great Leap Forward as a result of a genetic mutation which gave Homo sapiens this unique ability. We'll begin with the first explanation, and for that we have to go back in time, way back. But we'll do that in the next episode. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Here and Now podcast. You can find us on Facebook at The Here and Now Podcast or Twitter at Here Now Podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe to keep up to date with all of the latest episodes. And if you want to support the podcast, you can find us on Patreon or leave a review at the Apple Podcasts app. You can reach out to me via the pages or email thehereandnow at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>